Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. Welcome to the first episode of 2024. I hope that perhaps you are somewhere enjoying yourself, just cozy, under a blanket, something like that, just lying, relaxing, and enjoying yourself. But I'd like to think New Year, get work done, and I'd like to think that you're doing your job or you're going on a walk, working out, etc., etc., and it might not even be the new year, wherever you are. Well, it could be, it's going to be a year somewhere, but this could be millennia in the future. So, President Camacho, if you are listening, thank you. Thank you for your, your service. That's right. I'm making an idiocracy reference to start the year. That's how we're getting things going. That's how 2024 is going to go. So, we get started, though, with the college football playoff. I know we've got the Winter Classic. We've got week 17 of the NFL season, which until a couple of years ago would mean more, but it's now second to last week. But we get started, I would say, first and foremost, let's talk about the college football playoff. It is official. Michigan will face Washington Monday night in Houston for the national championship. And I think it's rather appropriate. One of the things I like about this is, you know, I've been rather critical in, in saying that college football the college football playoff, or just college football in general, really, is so strange in comparison to other sports, where, it, you know, generally the best teams will play, but not the teams that are best in terms of record. And so, for example, this year, Liberty and Florida State were both undefeated, and neither of them made it to the college football playoff. Now, again, CFP committee, they're looking for the most entertaining games by the best teams, and in terms of teams you want to see, what's going to make it the most entertaining, the, the best teams on in terms of talent, and in terms of coaching to watch, they probably got it right, possible exception being, I don't know, maybe Georgia replaces one of those teams, but after Florida State's blowout loss to Georgia in the Orange Bowl, which was embarrassing, but I will say that's not necessarily related to the quarterback situation, I, I I thought that Brock Glenn actually looked a lot better on camera. He actually looked a lot better than he did on paper. He finished 9 of 26 for 139 yards, no touchdowns, two picks. One of those picks was late in the first half, thrown out of desperation pretty much the last play of the first half. And that he's not the reason Florida State lost, because the vast majority of quarterbacks will not be able to contend with an opposing team that puts up 63 points, a 63-3 Florida win. If anything, this game proves that Georgia should have been in the playoff, not that Florida State didn't belong, because they also had a lot of guys sitting for this game. Now, I am glad that it puts to rest the whole thing about, you know, people being so obsessed with Florida State not making it, when there have been so many non-Power 5 schools who have been perhaps treated a bit unfairly in terms of not making the playoff over the year. And to the point where there apparently was like legislation and, and and lawsuits coming, outrageous. And you know, it, it, Carson Beck played really well for Georgia, thirteen of eighteen, two hundred three, two touchdowns. Didn't play the full game, but did a good job. But the real reason, besides Florida State having a lot of guys out, the real reason Florida State lost this game by sixty points is because they could not stop the run. Georgia had 372 yards on the ground, and the, the big issue was Kendall Milton. Nine carries for 104 yards and two touchdowns. 
He dominated the early part of the game, and that's the reason they lost. All right, 35 points in the second quarter. That's the reason they lost this game. But when you have this game for Florida State, and then you factor in Liberty's blowout loss to Oregon in the Fiesta Bowl, Michigan and Washington are the only two unbeaten teams remaining. And that's what I like about the national championship, is that it worked out. The, the college football playoff committee, in some ways, gambled, and they won by not letting in Florida State, or in many ways not letting in Georgia as well. And they've gotten two really good games so far. And many have argued that this is the best college football playoff ever. Now, I know I got that update from ESPN. Could this be the best college football playoff ever? And the truth is, if you're a media outlet, you know, you have to keep hyping things up. But it's true. It's th- These games have been outstanding. I'll be honest, I didn't really get to see all of Washington and Texas just because of the timing, I guess. And, you know, you're worn out from, from the holidays and all that. But what I did see was great. I saw almost the entirety of the first half, and then I saw the highlights later. The Michigan-Alabama game was outstanding. Now, Michigan, of course, holds off Alabama by a score of 27-20 to 20 in overtime. And what's funny is Michigan, in many ways, looked like the much more dominant team in this game, particularly in the first half, because they dominated the line of scrimmage. They did a really good, their offensive line did a really good job. Their defensive line was, I think, the big key to this game. They sacked Jalen Milrow six times. I believe five were in the first half. That was the key, really, for Alabama. And getting back into this game in the second half is that Nick Saban made a lot of adjustments for that offensive line, and Milrow did a great job of scrambling. He was probably the biggest weapon in this game, but not in terms of his, for Alabama, but not in terms of his, I would say his passing so much as his rushing. He actually ran the ball, officially he ran the ball 21 times in this game for 63 yards. And I think when you factor in the the negative yards, that would come from a quarterback play like that. I think that's especially impressive. That's it's even more. It's even more impressive on film than it is on paper. And then McClellan was dominant on the ground. Jace McClellan had 14 carries for 87 yards and two touchdowns. It was the run game that was biggest for Bama in this game, but they were limited to 288 total yards. Michigan had 351. JJ McCarthy for the game was really solid. He was the offensive. MVP, 17 of 27, 221 yards and three touchdowns, did not turn the ball over. However, you want to talk about subverting expectations. J.J. McCarthy throws a pick on the first play from scrimmage, which is ultimately overturned. Fortunately for them, it was not a pick. It was out of bounds. But really, that that was perhaps the, the culmination of Two difficult, really more difficult years than that for Michigan, but two different, two difficult years in the playoff with their you know, blowout loss. I think it was a three-score loss to Georgia two years ago, and then a game they probably should have won against TCU last year in the college football playoff semifinals. But even before that, going way back in the Harbaugh era, and many ways in the Brady Hoke era, actually, to the you know Michigan Ohio State 2016 was Curtis Samuel. Over the, the line, did Curtis Samuel get a first down on, I think it was on fourth and one in Columbus? And, you know, that was a, a controversial one. So Michigan finally getting over the hump and getting to the national championship game. McCarthy ultimately did his job. And I think that play might have 
actually gotten him out of his head. So a lot of quarterbacks that will throw you off for the rest of the game. And you could, if you're a Michigan fan, you probably could have expected the worst, but somehow the Wolverines survived. And this is even after not the Michigan still didn't get anything out of that possession. And then you have Samaj Morgan who muffs the punt after Michigan's defense looks unbelievable on the opening drive. So Samaj Morgan's muffed punt leads to an Alabama touchdown. Michigan defense really only let up, yeah, they let up 20 points for the game, but I think Alabama got the ball inside the 40-yard line on their first possession for a score. So really, really dominant. And Milrow actually did not look that bad. He went 16 of 23 for 116, which is not incredible. But you factor in the run, the, the running, the rushing yards. And then it's more, he looked better on film than he did on paper. He fumbled once, didn't throw any picks, fumbled once. He looked good on the ground despite being stuffed at the line of scrimmage on the final play of the game. It was fourth and goal from the three to close the game. Ultimately, it was probably the right call by Saban to have him run. He was he was probably their, their biggest weapon. The run game was their biggest weapon offensively on the afternoon and into the evening at the Rose Bowl. Blake Corum runs for the winning score in overtime, also had a receiving touchdown earlier on, had 83 yards on the ground for the game. Not his most impressive game, not the most impressive game for the Michigan offense, but considering the opponent, it was pretty solid. 19 carries, 83 yards, and a touchdown for him. Biggest, Really, they, they spread the ball out in, in this game as well. McCarthy spread it out among his receivers. Roman Wilson had four catches for 73 yards and a touchdown, the tying touchdown. In the last five minutes, as a matter of fact, Wolverines do a good job of holding Alabama to a field goal with just under five minutes left in regulation. McCarthy leads them down the field, gave Milrow a little bit too much time. I think it was a minute 32 left on the clock as McCarthy hit Roman Wilson for the score. Wilson, in addition, had a, a play earlier on a tipped ball near the line of scrimmage. Wilson makes an unbelievable catch, potentially preventing an interception, getting a huge gain out of it for 29 yards. And you also have Tyler Morris, who had, I think it was like less than 10 catches for the season and was not one of the guys about whom you talked the most. You talked the most probably about Rowan Wilson. You talked about Cornelius Johnson. You talked about Samaj Morgan to an extent. You talked about Colston Loveland. And by the way, Johnson and Loveland limited to four catches for 25 yards combined. Samaj Morgan helped make up for his mistake, had four catches for 24 yards in the game, also had a carry for six yards, but Morris was the surprise. Two catches, 45 yards, and a touchdown, a 38-yard score. Blake Corum, two catches, 35 yards, and a touchdown, so the Wolverines able to spread the ball around in this game. The big issue for Michigan, and the biggest reason they could have and in many ways should have lost this game, was atrocious special teams. James Turner hooked a 49-yarder just wide to the left, but well, the Wolverines also missed out on an extra point, not because of Turner, but because of a low snap. And then, of course, you have the Morgan Muff punt that leads to an Alabama touchdown. So that's right there. That's 11 points. And then Michigan nearly lost the game on a briefly botched punt return near their own goal line by Jake Thaw. Now, a lot of times you can have the underrated plays that don't win the game, but keep you from losing the game. And I will say, Jake Thaw made a huge mistake by not calling for, 
or for, by not letting the ball bounce. In many ways, it was the same thing with Morgan when you do it when you're in the sun and you're on the run to try to make that play. But I'll give Jake Thaw a lot of credit because somehow he grabbed that football, got out of his own end zone, got to the one yard line, got popped by multiple Alabama special teams players, and somehow held on to the football. A la, you talk about it a lot if you're from this area. The Giants-Bills Super Bowl, Super Bowl 25, one of the great Super Bowls ever. Jeff Hostetler was safetyed by Bruce Smith, the all-time sacks leader. And it probably should have been a touchdown, but somehow Hostetler, despite Smith having his hand wrapped around Hostetler's right wrist, Hostetler holds onto the football in his right hand, does not lose it. And that's perhaps, in many ways, the difference in that game, a one-point game when the Giants trailed by nine at this point. So, Michigan didn't lose the game on the play. That was was the most important thing. Credit to to Thaw for getting that ball out of the end zone, not losing the football a second time at least, and not taking a safety. So, a, a phenomenal game. So, that was the first game. The second game, equally entertaining, little higher scoring. Washington beats Texas 37-31 in the Sugar Bowl as Texas comes within 12 yards of their first title game appearance since 2005. Both quarterbacks, I will say, both quarterbacks were essentially perfect. Neither Michael Penix nor Quinn Ewers committed a turnover in this game. Ewers had 318 yards and a touchdown. Penix, 430 yards and two touchdowns. An incredible deep ball quarterback. Penix, 29 of 38. Ewers, 24 of 43. These teams combined for over 900 yards of total offense. Not a ton on the ground for Washington. They had 102 total yards. The Longhorns able to spread things around a little bit. They had no running back with more than 64 yards, but they had 180 total yards on the ground. Washington was up 37-21 in the fourth quarter, although this game was tied at halftime 21-21. But despite great performances by these quarterbacks, in some ways the difference was the the turnovers for each team. First off, you have the muff pump by Washington that leads to Texas's tying touchdown to even the game at 14. But then you also have two fumbles in the second half by Texas, one of which was probably about a six-point swing, was probably the difference in the game as the Longhorns were in field goal range, and then Washington was able to turn that into a field goal at the other end. 37-31 victory for the Huskies. One of the biggest reasons they were able to survive and win this game, though, is that they moved the pocket a lot. Because Texas has a very imposing defensive line, and to put 37 points up on this team and 430 yards through the air is very impressive. So they kept moving the pocket for Michael Penix Jr., who is not that much of a mobile quarterback, but he does have a great arm, great deep ball arm, and they were able to protect him. So I'm very interested to see if that's what they will do against Michigan as well, because Michigan's D-line got the job done and was the most impressive part of their performance. Most notably Mason Graham, who was the game's defensive MVP, Got the big stop in the backfield on, I think it was second and goal on that final drive. 
yes, it was actually the, yeah, off the top of my head, it, it was actually that forced Alabama back to, I think about the 14 yard line for third and goal. And it's going to be crucial. To, uh, that, that's probably going to be the biggest matchup. Michigan D-line against the Washington O-line. Although, to be fair, Washington's defensive line was fairly penetrable in this game, especially on the ground, as I mentioned, 180 rushing yards for Texas. And they nearly came back to win. But this should be a very interesting national championship game. I will take Michigan. I think Michigan should win if they just do the simple things right. So special teams, most notably. Extra points, field goals, punts. And they, they made mistakes in all three of those kinds of plays in the last game, and it nearly cost them. Now, Jim Harbaugh outcoached Nick Saban to the point that even Paul Feinbaum, who has been one of the biggest critics of Michigan, and, and in many ways rightfully so, has even said that he no longer calls a potential title for Michigan tainted. And that's pretty much what I had said. I, I, I think that's, I like to think that's what I said about Michigan is that, you know what, that's kind of the, the best test that you can give them is to see if they can win cleanly. And it appears that they have. It appears they have faced the toughest test. It's the first time they've gotten to the final of a college football playoff game, and they have stood up to the scrutiny, akin to the 2022 Houston Astros. Now, I don't know if the Michigan scandal is is really as controversial. We, we, don't, we really don't know that much. I honestly think a ton of this is actually speculation, but... You know, you talk about the, the Houston Astros, a team that was very controversial, won their World Series in 2017 by, in, in many ways, in, in many ways more than any other team ever, by artificial means. And then in 2022, won it purely on merit. With I, Now, to be fair, I think there were only three, I think there were only three players left in the lineup from that 2017 team. But it showed that they were obviously good, or reinforced the idea that those guys were good ball players. beside the fact. And it reinforces here that Michigan is a good football team. And it's going to make for some very exciting television on Monday night. Now we've talked about Monday, let's talk about Sunday, and actually Saturday, for the NFL's 18th and final week of the regular season for 2023-2024. Now, as the AFC picture stands right now, it is the Ravens, Dolphins, Chiefs, Jags, Browns, Bills, and Colts with the Texans and Steelers still with the opportunity to make the playoffs. Everybody else has been eliminated. Now, the Ravens have clinched the number one seed. They are the only team in the AFC to lock up their seed. So they will finish with the best record in the conference and home field throughout the AFC playoffs. In my estimation, it's probably going to be... Well, Jacksonville will probably stay at four. They're playing at Tennessee on Sunday. Kansas City has clinched the AFC West. Talk a little more about that in a moment. They will probably stay at three with a win over the Chargers. 
even with a loss to the Chargers, if Jacksonville wins, Jacksonville wins the division, Kansas City has the tiebreaker anyway, Kansas City's the three. The Buffalo and Miami winner will end up being the two seed. I honestly think it's going to be Buffalo, the way they've been riding as of late. And I end. I think that Miami drops to six because Cleveland would have the better conference record than Miami. So I think it's going to be Cleveland and Miami. And honestly, I think I would take Houston to win at Indianapolis. I trust C.J. Stroud a lot more in his rookie year, even though this is not him at 100%. Still coming off a concussion a couple weeks ago. I would take the Texans to win that game. Even if the Steelers win at Baltimore, that would be Houston for the last spot, and that would be wild to see the Houston Texans in the playoffs. NFC, meanwhile, you have the Niners locked into the number one seed. We know for sure that's where they will be. They're the only team in the NFC locked into their seed. Cowboys at two, Lions at three. Lions have already clinched the division. Tampa Bay at four, Eagles at five, Rams at six. Eagles and Rams are both in the playoffs already for sure. Forgot to mention, of course, Miami and Cleveland have also clinched playoff spots, by the way. There is a world where Buffalo can miss the playoffs on Sunday. There is a world where Jacksonville can miss the playoffs if a certain amount of things happen on Sunday. Eagles, Rams, and the Green Bay Packers currently the seventh and final seed. Now, as it goes... Niners play the Rams on Sunday. Niners will be resting everybody. The Rams should win that game. Rams are already have already clinched. I don't know if they are clinched for the sixth seed, but with a win over the 49ers, they most definitely would be. Cowboys need a win at Washington in Landover to win the NFC East and finish with the number two seed. The Lions... Are, if, if Dallas wins, Detroit is locked in. The only way Detroit gets the two seed is if the Lions, rather, if if the Lions win and the Cowboys and Eagles both lose, which is highly unlikely. But I wouldn't rule it out necessarily because Dallas lost to Washington last year on the road in a game that meant nothing for Washington, in a game where Dallas had the opportunity to still jump in the postseason standings. And then you also have the Eagles and the Giants. The Giants nearly beat the Eagles last week. The Eagles have underperformed, and the Eagles just lost to the Cardinals. I wouldn't rule that out either. Still highly unlikely, but I'm throwing it out there. Then you have Tampa Bay at four, really playing at Carolina, and still with a shot to make the playoffs on the outside looking in. Seahawks, Saints, Vikings, and Falcons all have an opportunity still to reach the playoffs, some teams more likely than others. But none of those teams get in. If Tampa Bay wins, and if Green Bay wins, and those are very likely because the Buccaneers play at Carolina, worst team in the NFL this season, the Packers will be at home against the Bears. That is a winnable game, perhaps, for the Bears, but it is a game Green Bay probably should win. So I think it's probably going to be about the same after Sunday. It's probably going to be... Niners, Cowboys, Lions, Bucks, Eagles, Rams, Packers. And that's probably what it ends up being. Now, going back into this past week, the Lions fall at the Cowboys 20-19 on Saturday as Taylor Decker is called for an ineligible man downfield on the two-point try. Brad Allen's officiating crew has been demoted as it appeared 
Decker reported to him, though Allen claimed he reported on behalf of Skipper, his his offensive line mate. Now, I can tell you that I don't know a lot. I don't know everything about the procedure of reporting eligible, but it seems highly unlikely, and we don't have any evidence to say that Decker did or did not report eligible. We only have his word. We have the team's word. We have Brad Allen's word and the officiating crew's word. But it seems highly unlikely that a player would report that another that another teammate is reporting eligible, that he would report on a player's behalf. So I that that doesn't really make much sense to me, and the Lions may have been robbed of this game, which could have serious playoff implications. Lions are already in; they've already clinched the division. This also hurts the Eagles. Now the Eagles also dug their own grave by losing the Cardinals, but it's it's something that makes a huge difference, and that's why the demotion took place. Now, neither of these teams really impressed me that much in this game. Dallas could not seem to run the ball yet again. They were limited to 61 yards on the ground. Dak Prescott went 26 of 38, 345, two touchdowns and a pick. However, the Cowboys are too reliant on C.D. Lamb. 13 catches, 227 yards and a touchdown. Remarkable game. And a remarkable season for C.D. Lamb as he surpasses Michael Irvin for most receptions, receiving yards in a season for the Dallas Cowboys. And he did so in the 16-game stretch under which Michael Irvin would have done it. But the Cowboys are not a deep team at receiver, in my opinion. Brandon Cooks has been you know, okay. He had five catches for 60 yards and a touchdown in this game. But if you contain C.D. Lamb you contain the entire Cowboy offense, in my opinion. Tony Pollard was limited to 16 carries for 49 yards in this game. Jared Goff, not that impressive. He threw for 271 in the touchdown, but he also threw two picks. That was a huge difference. The team, Jameer Gibbs only had 43 yards on 15 carries. And so the Lions ran the ball a lot, but they didn't necessarily run it that well. And they turn the ball over, obviously. And then on top of that, there's the divisive call even to go for it if you're Dan Campbell and the Lions. Sam Laporta also had a big drop. Neither of these teams looked that impressive to me in this game. I still think the Niners are far and away the team to beat in the NFC. And the Eagles only ruined their standing both literally and metaphorically this week. However, I will say something happened this week that was long overdue, and that was Jimmy Johnson being rightfully inducted into the Cowboys' ring of honor. Jimmy Johnson, who was so integral to the Cowboys' success, and it's funny, there is a line from draft day, and I don't know if I don't know if this is the exact line, but the essence of it is Dennis Leary's head coach character is talking about how he won a championship. And I don't remember if they say he was in Dallas, but Kevin Costner is you know, GM. Essentially, his response is, oh, yeah, you did a great job of babysitting that team. And while Barry Switzer is a great coach, 
that's kind of what it was when Jimmy Johnson was no longer the Cowboys head coach. Really, that was his team, that last, the 95 Super Bowl team for Dallas. Jimmy Johnson was such a shot of life that legitimized the that era of, of Cowboys football. It was such a, a surprise and to, to a lot of people and really a total transformation of what the Dallas Cowboys are and what they are deemed to be by many fans when Jerry Jones bought the team and then fired Tom Landry almost immediately. But he did build a winning culture in the 90s, and so much of that went through Jimmy Johnson. There is a reason why that team was so successful, and it's not just because of Emmett Smith or Michael Irvin, Troy Aikman, Larry Allen, you know, and any number of players on that team, Deion Sanders later on, any number of players on that team. Jimmy Johnson was so important, and the fact that it has taken them, what, 28 years, 29 years, whatever it is since, since he was their head coach to do that is outrageous. But it was truly a homecoming for him, and, and rather rather appropriate. Now, another significant thing, not as big, but Corey Webster, who re- last played nearly a decade ago, retired as a Giant this week. Now, rather underappreciated cornerback, not a Hall of Fame coach like, like Jimmy Johnson is, but rather underappreciated corner in nine seasons, all with the Giants, helped lead them to two Super Bowls, was really picked on early in the 07 season when the Giants ended up winning the Super Bowl later on, of course, upsetting the undefeated Patriots. A lot of people forget that he picked off Brett Favre in the OT in OT of the 2007 NFC Championship game, pretty much locked up the game, well, almost locked up the game as Lawrence Tynes kicked the winning field goal. That was Brett Favre's last pass as a Packer. He also had three total takeaways in that postseason for the Giants and was there for the 2011 team as well. Was actually a very solid corner and was... You know, a lot of people remember Randy Moss catching the touchdown to put the Patriots in front in the fourth quarter of that Super Bowl. Corey Webster slips on that play, but ultimately was a huge piece of containing a very dominant Patriot receiving core. And the same same went four years later, as a matter of fact. So rather significant as he was honored by the Giants before the game, a game that they ultimately lost to the Rams by a score of 26-25. to the Rams clinched a playoff spot for the first time in two years, going back to their Super Bowl championship season of 2021. They reached the postseason by virtue of the win and the Seahawks' loss. Mason Crosby signed off the Giants' practice squad, missed a field goal wide left by, honestly, probably about a foot. And it's interesting because the Giants played this game fairly evenly with the Rams. And if you think about it, they were about... They were about three yards from the playoffs this year. They had the fourth and one against the Jets and the narrowly missed field goal. They should have had a, they screwed up against Buffalo where they should have had a field goal before halftime. And then they mismanaged the clock. And then, of course, they were stopped at the one yard line to end the game. And then less than a yard from beating the Rams based on how close the Crosby field goal was. And if you put all three of those together, they'd be eight and eight. With the tiebreaker over the Rams, they'd be in the playoffs right now. 
And so it's funny. It's a giant team that is not as far off as you might think, but just a bizarre way to lose. In the AFC, you had a wild game as the Browns clinched their third playoff berth this millennium. The second, by the way, under Kevin Stefanski, he's the first Browns head coach to lead the team to the playoffs more than once since Marty Schottenheimer. Speaking of long overdue, that's a guy who should be in the Hall of Fame, the late, great Marty Schottenheimer, who led the Browns to two AFC Championship games, led, I think, four different teams to the playoffs, and is so underappreciated. But that is great company for Kevin Stefanski, who should be in high consideration for Coach of the Year, doing most of this, doing mo- spending most of the year without Deshaun Watson, of course, managing several different quarterbacks and a dominating defense going without Nick Chubb for most of the year. But a Browns team that rode to victory and could be dangerous in the playoffs if they do it right. Joe Flacco went 19 of 29 for 309 yards, three touchdowns, and a pick. Trevor Simeon, 32 of 45, 262, and a touchdown, but he threw a pick six that helped lock. This game was over by halftime for Cleveland, a 37 to 20 win. Cleveland, it looks like, will be, I think they're locked in the five seed following the Ravens clinching the one seed, thereby clinching the AFC North. The Browns, in some ways, with a de facto bye week, sort of the poor man's bye week, as they are locked into that five seed, they will play at either Jacksonville or Indianapolis. It's If you're Cleveland, you'd rather go to Indianapolis, one, because it's closer and you'll get a lot more fans on the road there. But two, I think they're a more beatable team. But it looks like they're if the Jaguars don't beat the Titans, that's on them. But the Browns should be playing at the Jaguars. And that is a winnable game because Jacksonville has struggled as of late. I still don't think Trevor Lawrence is at 100% after that Bengal game. I don't know how you can have an injury like that and be at 100%. Not to mention he's also suffered some head injuries as of late. And Miles Garrett and the Cleveland defense are about as dominant as any team on that side of the ball. So that is that is a game. The Cleveland Browns can make some noise in the playoffs. They've beaten the Ravens this year. They've beaten the Niners this year. And right now it seems like the consensus is those are the two best teams in football and should be the teams that, that represent their respective conferences. But we shall see. By the way, the the Jets are releasing Dalvin Cook, who is restructuring his contract to forfeit remaining guarantees. He is doing so so he can be waived and perhaps signed with another team. It's an experiment that did not work for the Jets. Look, if Aaron Rodgers is a quarterback, I don't know if it does, but it is just a moment that has passed. By the way, the Chicago Bears clinched the number one pick following Jacksonville's win over Carolina, blowout victory for them. And, of course, the Jags, all they need to do is beat the Titans in order to clinch the division. The Niners clinched the one seed with a win at Washington and the Eagles' surprising loss to the Arizona Cardinals. I had said before the week I would not be surprised if the Cardinals win in Philadelphia because... They are the Lions. They are the Lions from two years ago. 
They have been in a lot of games. They've beaten a couple of really good teams. They've beaten the Cowboys now. They've beaten the Eagles. They've been in just about every game they've played. They just haven't won a lot. And it looks like apparently they were going to commit to Kyler Murray for next year, which is a nice rebound for them. But the Cardinals are a team that is quietly on the rise. They've, they've got a culture change there with Jonathan Gannon. It looks like they're going to commit to Kyler Murray again. And that, that's a team that's that's made a bit of a renaissance. I, I keep an eye on them for next year. I, within two years, I am betting that the Arizona Cardinals will be in the playoffs. I'm going to bet that right now. they got to get the draft right, but that's what I think is going to happen. However, the Eagles have no excuse to lose to the Arizona Cardinals and let up, what, 35 points? You let up 35 points to the, to, to the Arizona Cardinals and you're the Eagles' defense, you have a problem. And I, I still think the Eagles are probably the second-best team in the conference behind the 49ers. If they get things right, that's that's what it is in my opinion. But they're going to have to figure things out. And odds are, unless the Cowboys really blow it, odds are the Eagles are have, going to have to go and play on the road. Even the NFC South game is not a given. Because Baker Mayfield has played well as of late. Tampa Bay could make it a game with the Eagles if, if that's what happens. Or even if it's somehow not Tampa Bay, maybe it ends up somehow being the Saints. That's another game that is that is perhaps losable. That, those games are not gimmies. And then the Eagles would have to go to Santa Clara around early, probably. I mean, perhaps you even end up in Arlington or Detroit. Who knows? But that's what it looks like. And you know what? It's not a given, I would say, that even the Eagles win this week. Because the Giants made it close. Giants made it close a couple of weeks ago. The Eagles can only really beat themselves, in my opinion. But the Giants kept it close. And so there is, there is trouble brewing in Philadelphia. This is a team that looked destined to get back to the NFC Championship game and a team that had Super Bowl aspirations from the start. They very well could still win the whole thing, but they are making the road much tougher for themselves. And I think people really need to realize that this is a secondary that's struggled. This is a secondary that hasn't really been good for a while. And even the D-line has struggled to contain the run. You can run all over the Eagles as of late. It's it's weird, but apparently it's possible. And so you got to take a big look at that. The Ravens, of course, clinched the one seed with the most dominant performance under that pressure by any team probably this year. A 56-19 win over the Miami Dolphins. Lamar Jackson silencing critics with five touchdown passes. Not just doing it on the ground, doing it through the air, making a very strong case, making probably his biggest case of the season for the NFL's Most Valuable Player Award. In my opinion, I'd still give it to Christian McCaffrey. But if you had to give it to a quarterback, it's probably going to be up to, really, Brock Purdy is the, is the other one in my opinion, but Brock Purdy, you make a case for Dak Prescott, and you can make a very good case for Lamar Jackson. On the flip side for the Dolphins, I don't even know why he was still playing that late, but in the fourth quarter, Bradley Chubb, 
suffered a torn ACL, and he is done for the season. 3.05 left in the fourth quarter. Down 30 points. And Bradley Chubb was still in the game. Mike McDaniel said, quote, There's times like this one where I would like a time machine for sure, unquote. Huge mistake leaving him out on the field, leaving any of your starters really out on that field in what turned out to be a 37-point victory for the Baltimore Ravens. Miami Dolphins were perhaps their, in some ways, their biggest potential kryptonite. But Tua Tagovailoa threw two picks. The Ravens had 491 yards of total offense. And they were just absolutely dominant in this game. Lamar Jackson had a perfect passer rating. Even Tyler Huntley threw a touchdown late in this game. So the Ravens lock up the number one seed. The Dolphins now leave themselves susceptible to a wild card spot with a loss to Buffalo this upcoming week. The Chiefs, meanwhile, clinched their eighth straight AFC West title in a 25-17 win over the Bengals, who are eliminated. I will say Zach Taylor should also get strong consideration for Coach of the Year for what he has done with Jake Browning, who is has been around for a while. Has been around not quite as long as you might think, but has played very, very well in relief of Joe Burrow. And they've been, a, they've been a strong team. Their win at Jacksonville was especially impressive to me. But the Chiefs ultimately do win despite multiple drops. Marquez Valdez-Scantling is probably their biggest concern. I still think they have a lot of promise in Sheed Rice. And a lot of promise, I think, with Justin Watson, to be honest. But the biggest issue for the Chiefs will probably be trying to find a, a real number one receiver again. Now, you can have a lot of decent receivers that just do their job. Because even Julian Edelman, I don't know if Julian Edelman was a clear number one. He was a guy who took a lot of punt returns. Patriots spread the ball around. You can have, you can get away with not having a number one guy at wide receiver. But, for one thing, Travis Kelsey has not had his best year. He's been a little injury riddled at times. I don't think it has anything to do with the publicity, but there's that. And then you have enough significant drops. And I don't even mean long balls. I mean short routes, short crossing routes. Guys are dropping balls. Chiefs have more drops than any other team in the league. And that should show you how good they still are, that they're still 10-6. and And they are going to be, looks like the three seed in the AFC. And to be honest, I still think they should scare you as much as just about any team in that conference. I could still very well see them coming out of that conference. Now Patrick Mahomes is going to have to play on the road in the playoffs for the first time, assuming they get out of the first round. It's not going to be a gimme if they play. They're going to have to play probably either Miami or Buffalo in the first round, which would be one of the most exciting wild card games you'll ever see. But the Chiefs will have a much tougher road ahead. Okay, let's talk about the Winter Classic. The Seattle Kraken defeat the defending Stanley Cup champion Vegas Golden Knights 3 to nothing 
in the 2024 Winter Classic from T-Mobile Park in Seattle. Joey Decord secures the first-ever Winter Classic shutout en route to being named the game's MVP and getting the first-ever Coco Cup. Made 35 saves in the win. It's funny, Logan Thompson gave up two, I think, two bad goals. I thought the, the, the Borgen goal wasn't great. You had Tolvanen with the deflection early on. That was a really nice, really nice tip out in front. But then the Yanni Gord goal is also inexcusable. And so it was mainly a battle of the goaltenders. You could argue in many ways Vegas was the better team in this game. But the goaltending was so skewed in Seattle's favor. Outstanding performance by Decord in just his second shutout of the year. Just his second shutout ever. And with Thompson, although Thompson leads the team in wins, Aiden Hill has the best goals against and the best save percentage in the league by far. And so that really begs the question, why Aiden Hill, why was Aiden Hill not in goal in this game? Now, I know it is, look, it's ultimately still a game that matters. It's a regular season game. You have to balance it with the schedule. But you would think Aiden Hill the guy who backstopped you to the Stanley Cup last year after you know multiple goaltender injuries, you would think he would be the guy for such an important day like this for Vegas. But ultimately, the Kraken pull it off, a crowd of over 47,000 as they sell out T-Mobile Park. Really great atmospheres. I love that they have done this in recent years. I know they did it with Minnesota, where they had... A lot of the great players in, at each sport, in each of the four major sports leagues at least, from Vikings, Twins, Wild, and the Timberwolves, of course. But look at Seattle, and they did a really cool thing. They brought out Edgar Martinez, in my opinion, the greatest designated hitter of all time. Brought out Jay Buhner, one of the more underappreciated players of his era, and a really solid power threat for the Mariners. Isaiah Thomas, the, the younger Isaiah Thomas, which was a really cool one because I had completely forgotten he is a Seattle native and is one of only three players in history to have his number retired by the University of Washington, guiding them to the NCAA tournament in each of his three seasons there, including the Sweet 16, as a matter of fact. And then, of course, Matt Hasselbeck, who, at least before Russell Wilson came around, was probably the best, you know, Dave Craig's up there, Jim Zorn's up there. But before Russell Wilson came around, probably the best quarterback in the history of the Seattle Seahawks was the first QB ever to take them to the Super Bowl. And so just a really, really nice atmosphere in Seattle. Great place for a hockey game. The one criticism I think I have for actually having it at is actually just having it at T-Mobile Park because it is a retractable roof. And so I think that it does kind of take something out of it. Obviously, they weren't going to close the roof, but I would have figured, okay, at that point, you play it at you play it at Lumen Field across the street, but maybe they figured they'd get a, a better atmosphere in that ballpark. It's a little, little older, I believe, and so a bit of a historical aspect, I, I suppose. But still, this was really well done. And the, the jerseys looked amazing. Just a, a beautiful, beautiful event. Once again, the the centerpiece of the NHL regular season, in my opinion. 
and it, it's what really puts them on the if if there's one game during the regular season that can put them all on the cultural landscape it's it's this one speaking of hockey the first ever PWHL game took place this week a four nothing win for New York in Toronto the league features the likes of Kendall Coyne Schofield Hillary Knight many other women's hockey superstars 72 game season will conclude with the playoffs in June hopefully they'll start sooner next year and be able to space things out because a 72 game hockey schedule in that short a span is just really a restless situation. Now the league has made some changes from, you know, the NHL or Olympic hockey, et cetera, et cetera. One thing is that any team that scores a shorthanded goal will wipe out their penalty. I'm personally not a huge fan of, I think that rule change and a couple of rule changes because I honestly just love the game the way it is. I'm a bit of a purist. The same goes for a lot of other sports for me. And it's not that it's any less interesting with women. I love watching women's hockey. But you know what? I'll give them credit because it is a way to stand out. And that's what the league is looking to do. That's what happens with... That's what's happened with the XFL and USFL, which are now merging. You try to do different things to try to stand out from an already established forum. And so they're just trying to make it a little more interesting. But I really hope this league is successful. We really need a, a good, successful, professional women's hockey league because the way the WNBA has succeeded and the way other women's sports leagues have succeeded, hockey really deserves that. Hockey especially deserves that. Now, transitioning to basketball for just a moment, the Knicks trade R.J. Barrett, Emmanuel Quickly, and a second rounder to the Toronto Raptors for OG Ananobi, Precious Achua, and Malachi Flynn. In addition, the Knicks extended Miles McBride on a three-year, $13 million deal. Now, I initially thought this was a terrible deal for the Knicks and a great deal for the Raptors. It is still, I think, a great deal for the Raptors, but after the initial, initial reports made by Adrian Wojnarowski, we got some supplementary reports that made it seem a lot more even. I still think the Raptors had the edge in this deal, but the Knicks got some things that they needed. Because initially it just said OG Ananobi. It said nothing about Achua. It said nothing about Flynn. It didn't say anything about the second rounder either. RJ Barrett is not necessarily a finisher. He can take over a game at times. He's not a number one guy. And... The Knicks needed ability to distribute the ball more between Brunson and Randall and and a third person, perhaps. Emmanuel quickly is a tough one to lose if you're the Knicks because he really has the capability of being a starting point guard in the NBA and could be that with the Raptors. But it's tough to play in Jalen Brunson's shadow, especially the way he has played, how well he has played. Precious Achua is... Someone they really needed in the middle with Mitchell Robinson out long-term. Tosh Gibson is obviously not the solution at center. And defensively, Ananobi's a good, Ananobi averages 17 a game, somewhat of a 3-and-D guy. Good outside shooter, but doesn't overdo it. And then you have Malachi Flynn, who will, of course, play off the bench, but 
clearly has some potential. And so guys like McBride, Deuce McBride, and Quentin Grimes are going to have to step up, but it's an interesting deal for the Knicks with some possibilities. Defensively, they've just struggled as of late. They've been struggling with playing defense, which is their, they're probably still the best defensive team in the league, but that just shows how high scoring this league has become. But, you know, it, it's, it's a heartbreaker probably for some fans. Barrett and Quickly, two absolute fan favorites for the Knicks. For the Raptors, they get a guy who can really drive the lane in R.J. Barrett. Really good young presence, good outside shooter that should add on to that really number one star presence of Pascal Siakam. And then Emmanuel Quickly will be able to provide some more outside shooting and really just a real spark off the bench. Those are two guys that are a little different in size, perhaps, a little different in position, but two guys, I think, with a similar skill set in Barrett and Quickly. And so I think it's a, a mutually pretty good deal for these two teams. The Raptors did, however, fall to the Detroit Pistons, who, in doing so, ended the longest, or tied for the longest, losing streak in the Big Four sports, 28 games long. And so, really important for the Pistons and the city of Detroit in terms of just pride to be able to finish that streak before it broke the record. That's not a, a record you want to take pride in or or break. You know, but they talked about the the Browns having the Owen, I think it was still an Owen 16 season and them throwing the parade for them. This is especially one that you, you're not going to be happy with this one. Moving on to baseball, there were a couple, couple of signings, a couple of deals made this week. Lucas Giolito signs a two year deal with the Red Sox. He has an opt out clause after this season. The Sox also traded Chris sale to the Braves for Vaughn Grissom. That is a deal that could be mutual benefit mutually beneficial. The Braves trying to add sale to the rotation. Giolito might have to be the anchor for a not particularly strong Red Sox starting five. But it's a gamble. It's a gamble for both of these teams. Two guys. Giolito was outstanding two years ago and just fell off this season. Chris Sale did record over 100 innings in a bounce back year for Boston. Wasn't incredible in terms of numbers and except for I think the amount of innings he was able to throw, but it's a gamble. It's a gamble for the Red Sox. It's a gamble for the Braves, and it's a gamble that could very well pay off. I think the the sale deal is it's a gamble because of his injury history, but considering what he did for Boston in 2018 and what he did this past year in a, in a bounce back season, that's that, that's a deal that could work. I think even more for them. Frankie Montas, by the way, signs a one-year, $16 million deal with the Reds. You know, I speak about it from a local angle. You think about pitcher, pitchers in particular who just did not shine in New York. And you think about Sonny Gray was one of them, who was with the Reds and with Oakland. Didn't pitch that well with the Yankees, but then you look, and look at a, you know, a Cy Young-worthy campaign in Minnesota, and you look at Montas, who I didn't, think this was a good deal for the Yankees in the first place for them to even trade for him, but they needed something in the rotation, obviously. But some guys have left the Yankees after struggling and gone on to pitch better in smaller markets. And maybe just it's just in their DNA that they just cannot stand up to that pressure. And so Cincinnati 
is a team that's on the rise, that could be a good landing spot for him. Plus, he goes back to the NL Central for, for Montas. And $16 million for what he's been at times that's worth the gamble for Cincinnati. That does it for us this week. Thank you so much for your time. Welcome to 2024. Keep up to date with us on my Facebook and X pages. And keep listening to us. If you can, listen to us on Spotify because that really helps us out. We continue to try to monetize this podcast. We take pride in trying to make the podcast better and and being open and wanting to monetize the podcast. So thank you very much for your time. And we will see you once again on Sports in the Waiting Room.